Sounds good. Well, thanks everybody for joining in the next edition of Quarantini. We're honored to have you here. Um, real quick admin note, we have a couple uh, additional episodes coming up in the coming weeks talking about education, the return back to work, uh, potentially talking to someone who helped found the XFL, but uh, talk about that collapse in a couple weeks. But we remain uh, committed to exploring all the different components of the current crisis that we're experiencing. And tonight I have the great honor of having a good friend of mine, Yanon Weiss here. He and I have known each other for, for years, going back to uh, my military days, where I'm the Chief Naval Operations for Rapid Innovation Cell. Uh, Yanon is an inveterate entrepreneur who started multiple successful companies, currently lives in the Bay Area, um, and his current work has taken him deep into the data around coronavirus, government responses, and insights around the world. Um, and so today we're going to explore, you know, what, what it means to be someone who thinks about data in a way that is maybe different than the status quo, but what the opportunities and impact that provides for our society is. So, you know, thank you so much for being here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's nice to see some familiar names uh, in the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to get us started, I want to take us back to January or February. And what strikes me kind of about your journey over the past four months is, you know, one of the first things I read that you wrote about coronavirus is actually about how to prepare for disaster. And so as a lot of us were thinking about, hey, should we get food, should we put gas in our car, you'd actually penned a pretty long and pretty comprehensive article on what it would mean to prepare for societal collapse. Can you walk us through kind of what what you've done in your life to prepare you for something like that and what the key elements of those insights were? Sure. Yeah, I think um, I was outed as a closet prepper because of coronavirus. Um, and I think that's because of my military background, both in the Marines and our, in the uh, Special Forces. Uh, you don't usually go through programs like that and uh, don't come out the other side with some, some mentality about that. Uh, of that. Um, so, you know, I view being prepared as an insurance policy. Uh, it's not about a crazy world coming to an end or an apocalypse, but... I really believe that in any given year of our life, there is some non-zero chance of uh, societal breakdown. Uh, and we can debate what that number is, but I think it's not maybe that far off from 1%, maybe half a percent. Uh, but given over uh, a 200 year time frame, that means it's a pretty good chance it can happen in your, in your lifetime. Um, so I've always looked at, as an insurance policy, what are some investments I can make, some plans I can make that are not uh, disruptive to my lifestyle and that are not monetarily overwhelmingly expensive that I can, I can take in terms of um, food preparation, communication preparation, planning preparation, uh, link up plans, water, uh, certainly uh, defense, tools for defense, um, and anything, all those, all those sorts of things. And I've honed those over the last two decades. Uh, and so when, coronavirus started really um, surfacing as a chaotic environment. I had a lot of people writing me, asking me for advice. Um, and I, I wrote a bunch of email and I got a lot of really positive feedback. And I said, okay, well, this is helping people. I'll just put this in, a, in an article and I'll kind of quickly post it. And I sat down after work. I wrote that thing in like an hour and a half uh, and posted it and got a lot of positive feedback um, and hopefully it was helpful for people. So when you wrote that, did you think it was a realistic chance that this virus could turn into something catastrophic or did you have some skepticism 
you know, how you kind of, you know, it have evolved in the past couple of months. So, I mean, I view society as relatively fragile. Um, I think we live every year with a, a veneer that everything is very stable, but I think the world is, um, has shown many times in the past that uh, it is much less stable uh, than people believe. I did not, well, I was not concerned about the virus itself. I was more concerned about the response to the virus. And so the way things were going, uh, I mean, I remember uh, Aaron and Jin showed me some, uh, some Google search terms. He showed me unemployment. Like, you know, you can see the, the curve for Google, people popularity in search terms. Unemployment went from like this to this. Buy a gun went from like this to this, mm -hmm. right? So we're seeing some leading indicators that uh, there's reason to be concerned. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, I think in any given year, I, my friends and I had this conversation about what is the probability of possible breakdown. I think in any given year, maybe it's a half percent or 1%. I think it got up to what I felt was maybe 10, 15% at kind of the peak, peak panic. Yeah. So it sounds like your concern wasn't necessarily around the virus itself kind of leading us into some dark age, but maybe the psychological response to the potential of that virus being that and, and the government and or individuals in society taking actions outside of the, the virus itself. Is that a fair summation or are there other considerations at play there? Yeah, that's a fair summation. Anytime you have a period of uh, uncertainty and high level of uh, ambiguity, uh, that opens up the window for lots of different opportunistic situations. Uh, China uh, taking a military, an opportunistic military move in the Pacific. Uh, North Korea doing something extreme. Yeah. Um, politicians or governors within the or executive branch within the United States. Uh, you know, grabbing some kind of power play, um, society itself losing confidence in the government and the stability of our world and people turning to uh, individual, individual, you know, kind of loss of law, uh, rule of law, right? Like that, that, was, that was my threshold in terms of, and that's why I write about an article. My article talks about there's three levels of survival you kind of have to be prepared for. The first one is, okay, which is kind of what we ended up in, which is, uh, you can't really go places. There's food shortages and maybe in some grocery stores. Um, you don't have your normal comfort items and you kind of need to just kind of uh, play it out. Uh, the second scenario is you need, to, you need to leave and you may not be coming back because you're in an urban area and there's a food shortage um, or water shortage and you've got you've to leave. And third scenario is the most extreme, which is full uh, breakdown of the rule of law. And, you know, those of us who've been in the military, and it looks like you've got a, quite a few military folks here on your, on your uh, call, uh, we've been to countries where the rule of law has failed. And so it's not hard for us to imagine what that can look like. Um, and so that's kind of the most extreme example. And I, I thought that there's probably a 10, 15% chance that that was going to happen here at the worst, kind of at the, at the down, down point. Yeah. So as you started listening to, you know, the news reports and, you know, maybe what the governments were saying, what foreign powers were talking about related to the virus and the spreading, do you remember if there was a first moment where you started to have a little bit of skepticism about what you were hearing, maybe the numbers that were coming out that just didn't jive with what you were, what your understanding was? 
Yeah, there was a definite moment. And I would also add that I was not paying a lot of attention to the virus until probably most other people were as well. Relatively um, early in March, I mean, March 10, 11, 12, it wasn't high my radar. I was aware of it, but I was not uh, spending the amount of time I would be in the following weeks studying it. Um, the first piece of data that I looked at was the release from Italy on March 17th um, that showed the death rates in Italy. And Italy was really the big story in early March. There was the deaths in Northern Italy. There was the Thomas Poyo piece that came out about flattening the curve and said, if you don't want your country to look like Italy, if you don't want people in the hallways of hospitals, if you want, don't want people dying left and right, if you don't want to be like Italy, you have to take drastic action now. And so Italy was the, Italy was the first Western, was the Western case for people to begin to be very concerned slash panic. And on, on the 17th, Italy published, the, like the national CDC equivalent of Italy published the death rates in Italy. And it's a graph I, I still share and show people. And it had, um, you know, average death was 80. And the vast majority of deaths were people in 70 to 90. And it had zero deaths, zero, zero deaths less than 30 years old. The article that Italy put out also said that 99% of those who died had a comorbidity. So they had some pre-existing condition that led to their death. 50% of people in Italy, yep, that's the one, 50% uh, of people in Italy had um, three or more uh, comorbidities. So when I saw that graph on March 17th, like to me, Okay, that tells me this thing is deadly. People are dying from it. Half the people dying from it, from it are over 80, right? The median is 80. Not a single person in the entire country of Italy under 30 has died. And a handful of people under 50 have died. That kind of gave me a framework for what kind of virus we're dealing with and what should, what should our response be? And so I also wrote uh, a piece like, like the nine-point plan um, which I think um, is very similar to what a lot of people are gravitating to now, which is protect the elderly. Um, first, define who is at risk, protect the elderly, uh, ramp up testing, ramp up contact tracing, build up medical capacity in case this thing gets out of control, uh, but don't stop life. Send kids to school. Let people work from home if they can, but if they can't, don't destroy their ability to generate income for themselves. Um, and so those all happened within about 48 hours. And that was like kind of March 16th, 17th, 18th. That's when it, I, I kind of formulated my initial hypothesis on what's going on. Yeah, maybe we can explore that in terms of like something I've been thinking about recently. And I think we've had conversations on like the precautionary principle and even you know, talking to Dan Rasmussen about eight weeks ago in the first episode of this, we've explored it. But for those who are unfamiliar, the precautionary principle is one put forward by a uh, philosopher slash economist slash whatever you want to call him, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, that says if you have an event with an immense downside risk, um, even if that risk is small, it might be worth taking precautionary measures that are costly in the short run to prevent that downside harm. And so, you know, I think late February, early March, I was all about precautionary principle. We need to do whatever it takes to prevent this catastrophic thing. But what's interesting about the precautionary principle, at least as I've come to understand it, is that is really the most relevant when you have a lack of information and uncertainty of balance. 
And I think what we saw is as the weeks progressed from March to April, we had an immense deluge of data that came in. And all the data that was coming in would allow us individually or collectively to just refine our assessment of the risk profile and what responses could be done to that. Um, at the same time, though, I think that the data was incredibly ambiguous, at least from my perspective. I think you have a different perspective we want to explore. Um, but, you know, we've seen immense numbers of deaths in the U.S., 65,000. We talk about, you know, the number of deaths for flus and all other stuff in, in a matter of two to three months. And so, you know, as you were wading through this data and you were starting to talk to folks about this, what was the reaction you got particularly for those who maybe were willing to accept at face value some of the more official statements? I mean, I've been very much in the minority in terms of um, interpreting this data this way, which has been very frustrating. And I don't think that um, most people are looking at data from, uh, you know, from a scientific point of view that they are second guessing the data, right? I think they are listening to the media. And I think the media is part of the, you know, I'm not a blame the media kind of kind of person, but I think there's cause and effects of what's happening. And so I think a difference between either way I'm, I've been looking at data is that for example, the CDC in late March, they were on some PR, you know, they had some PR campaign to say young people are at risk. Like it was very clear. They had the same talking points going out to all the Sunday morning shows and all the same talking points emerging all the major newspapers at the same time. And so when I read, and I read those stories because I'm not, I wasn't completely uh, deterministic by March 17th. I was just going off the data I had at hand. When I read a story like that from the C, that's pushed from the CDC, I don't just read the headline or even read the article. I go to the source information. I go to the CDC's website. I go to the, I download the PDF study and I go through their actual data. And so when they were saying young people are at high risk, young people should be worried, which I think kind of pushed a lot of people into like, this isn't just an old person concern. Um, the underlying data did not warrant it. Yet the media saying statements like young people may be at high risk, right? Young people may die from this. Here's an example of five people who died from this. You should be concerned too. But then you go into the data and you see that the risk is less than it is from driving from place to place on a daily basis. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are just not, they don't have the time, they don't have the, the background, the, the knowledge to maybe look at the underlying data. And I don't blame them, right? I mean, I, I, have, you know, I was fortunate to, I studied bioengineering in undergrad, which doesn't make me a, a scientific person for this subject, but I'm able to at least understand the graphs. I'm able to, like, I, I downloaded um, data. I, ran, I was running my own Excel models and my own Excel analysis based on the source data. And I just didn't see anything scary in there. And I think that's, that's clearly why I look at me and some other people look at it different from other people who are just going on, off the headlines. And if you just listen to the media, if you just listen to the media, then it's very terrifying what they're putting out. Yeah. Well, let's say hypothetically that, you know, the media hadn't run with the, you know, the, the young people at risk thing. But I think the data is pretty clear that those who are over 70, 75, 80, are at very high risk and you know, whether or not asymptomatic spread is high, there's a high likelihood that someone in that age category could catch it from a young person like me if I happen to go to a Mother's Day event or a birthday party. So how do you think about balancing the needs of society being the most vulnerable with you know, the facts that younger people may not get it but could be a transmission vector? 
So for this entire um, coronavirus element, I, I think I look at this through three lenses. There's the medical lens, there's the legal lens, and there's a moral lens. Okay, and the legal lens is to me more about the constitution and what the states in the United States are, are allowed to do. And as a side note, there was you know, Wisconsin Supreme Court just about three hours ago declared that the entire stay at home order in Wisconsin is unconstitutional. Whether that holds in the Supreme Court, what happens to other states, I don't know, but there's a whole legal, legal matter. There's also a moral question. Um, where most people are focusing on is the medical one because that's driving kind of the short-term fear. And so uh, let's discuss it from that perspective. I just wanted to outline that because it's not just the medical side that's going on. There's also a legal and the moral side. Now on the medical side, I actually think that we are causing more harm and killing more people by pursuing the plan that we're pursuing. So if an elderly person, so take two situations. We have one where everybody's locked down, elderly and young, okay? What are you gonna do? What's the exit plan? When are you gonna lift that? Like what's, what's gonna happen when you eventually lift it? Unless you plan to wait until it's a vaccine. So you can plan to wait until it's a vaccine, um, but I think that will kill even more people from deaths of despair. Um, but what is the exit plan? As opposed to do the same thing you're doing with the at-risk groups. Keep them at home, keep them quarantined, supply them food, give them special hours at grocery stores, do all the things we're already doing anyway with the high-risk population. But then take the low-risk population and let them be exposed, in, ideally in some sort of controlled matter, like Sweden is doing, semi-controlled. But let them be exposed. And over a month, or even after five weeks, uh, 538, Nate Silver just came out with a great model uh, in the last day or two about uh, how long it takes to reach herd immunity. And it's something about 30 to 40 days. So letting young people be exposed where their chance of death is like 0.001%, let them build herd immunity, and then slowly let the elderly out, you're actually gonna save more lives directly from the virus itself, and you're definitely going to save more lives from less suicides, less development of uh, drug relation, uh, drug abuse, generation creation of generational uh, poverty, right? So, from a medical perspective, what we're doing doesn't even make sense to me. Yeah. So you talk a whole host of fascinating issues to dive into. I think one of the things that might be on people's minds, and we're getting a lot of questions in, so we'll try to get to these throughout the conversation. Um, but you mentioned Sweden. I think Sweden and even the UK up until about yeah. six weeks ago, you know, they tried to pursue this, this herd mentality strategy. They quickly adjusted course for a variety of reasons. Um, so can you talk about the Swedish numbers in particular? Because I think people have heard about it, but in your deep dive, what have you seen? And you know, even as I look at the numbers, I, I'm still not sure what to make it because there's so much ambiguity, at least from my perspective on this. What have you seen in the Swedish numbers? And if, if you'd like, if you want to pull up you know, any data you might yeah. have, feel free to, to, to turn on the screen with us so we can kind of walk through it. Yeah, sure, let me, uh, let me do that. Um, so let me share my screen here. Uh, you have to enable it for me. Uh, oh, sorry. For the sh uh, screen, sir. Yep. One second. Um, so I'll, I'll preface it by telling everybody else. I look at a world in data, which is a website run by Oxford uh, daily um, on Sweden and other countries. 
So if you can see my screen, am I presenting now? Yep, you can see it. Okay. Uh, let me also add Denmark here. So this is a fantastic tool. I mean, part of this is just knowing where to find these tools. Um, this is run by Oxford. It's our world in data. They have tons of different ways to slice data on here. So this is deaths per million on a three-day rolling average. Like one common mistake I see by the media is talking about total deaths, not deaths per million. The United States has more deaths than anybody else, but the United States is, ten, is five times the size of Italy. So you got to compare United States to Europe. But so first of all, everything's got to be normalized for per population. So when you compare the major uh, Western countries, the UK, Spain, Italy, Germany, France. I also added Denmark in here. And we can also add Norway. Norway is lower, right? We can add Estonia. Estonia is lower. I'm adding the major Western countries. Sweden is right here. All these other countries completely lock down their society. They close down schools. They close down restaurants. They close down businesses. They told you to stay home. They lock down their society. Right. And here is Sweden. Now, if I if I blocked the list of countries here and I showed you this results and I said, guess which one Sweden is. I don't I don't think there would be much of people being able to guess um, which one which country is Sweden. Right. They're basically in the middle of the pack and they have been going down over the last few weeks. So, so their results. Let, let me just real quick. Uh, so as I look at this, as I look at these, like I, I see Sweden near the top of, of all these. Like I know France locked down. Germany had a pretty robust lockdown. I'm not sure where Denmark was. Obviously, Italy and Spain did. But but Sweden is is above this. And like 20 to 60 deaths for 40 per million. That, that's double the death rate. And even the United States is is trending at the highest, which I think we've had limited success with the lockdown. So this is this is where I'm I'm uncertain. I'm like. You know, I'm glad we're having this conversation, but I'm just not sure what to make of this when, when we say that yeah. I couldn't protect Sweden. Like, I see that the countries that have the challenge with lockdown are actually have higher death rates. Well, the deaths are happening to elderly. So right. a lockdown is not solving that problem. Sweden's deaths are happening in nursing homes and elderly. Mm. They're not happening in restaurants and concerts. And so... Okay. The biggest driver of how successful a country has been in protecting the population is how well they've protected the elderly. Now, Sweden mm -hmm. has admitted that they could have done a better job and they are trying to do a better job in protecting the elderly. I'm yeah. decoupling the question of, can your kid go play in a, in a softball field at a park or go yeah. to school? And are we protecting the elderly nursing homes? Yeah. They're two separate questions. No, that's a great point, actually. And I think that's one of the interesting things about statistics. We, we talk about, you know, what is the tyranny of averages or whatever, where you take an average and you apply it across a whole population. Um, and you, you assume that that average is, is um, similar across populations. But if you take the, the cuts, like we mentioned in Italy, you might get very different pictures. And so the, the, so I think what you're saying is that you really have to get a very narrow view of where the deaths, where the impact is occurring, and then tailor your strategy to target that specific um, challenging area. Is that is that an accurate summation of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I mean, I've basically been arguing that we shouldn't be taking a sledgehammer approach. Yeah, as we have been. I mean, here's the, I, what I, the chart I just showed you before was cases per million, which I actually do not think is even the relevant data point, because you may want to get more cases. It's a matter of who's getting the cases. The, 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 the most important data point is the deaths. So here's a chart of deaths per million by country. 
right? And if I didn't show you, if, if you, you know, if you blocked, if you blocked the countries on the right, if I was to say, here are six countries, which one of these did not shut down at all? You know, nobody would get that it was Sweden. Yeah. Which is as almost the exact same pattern. Hmm. Basically is statistically, statistically insignificant from the other major Western countries. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, again, why is that? It's because the deaths are coming in nursing homes. The deaths are coming for people in their 70s. People are coming with pre-existing conditions. And so denying kids the chance to go play in a playground is not, or preventing people from going to a restaurant in their 20s and 30s, that's, that doesn't move this needle. Yeah. So are you, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Are you hypothesizing that if the U.S. had done nothing, that the current death rate would likely be the same as it is right now? No, I mean, Sweden has not done nothing. So Sweden has done one thing from all society, which is they've banned events over 50 people. Yeah. And that also, I put that in my nine, I put down my nine point plan, which I wrote in the 16th, which was to limit uh, super spreader events. I think that's a rash, that's a reasonable precaution. Yeah. And it's a reasonable cost to pay for society. Right. Um, Sweden has also advised on social distancing. And so restaurants do have more space between tables. Um, they are limiting closed events where they're high transmission. And so what Sweden has done is they've slowed down, they've arguably slowed down the expansion in order to not risk uh, health system capacity overload. So Sweden has not done nothing. Um, what Sweden has done primarily has, put, has given more responsibility to the individual, saying, hey, we have a virus. These sorts of behaviors um, uh, accelerate this transmission. We want to slow that down. We encourage these sorts of behavior. We, you know, so their vacation travel has gone down 90%, mm -hmm. even though there's no travel ban. Right? So they have done a lot. Um, and ironically, uh, whereas now we have protesters in the United States at the Capitol with flags, with guns, losing credibility with the United States government, Sweden's population credibility is an all-time high with their government. So when, when Sweden's government comes out and says, hey, here's a new social guideline, please follow it, people trust them, people listen to them. Whereas the United States, we lose trust with our government. Sweden's programs are also more sustainable, right? What we did here was not sustainable, even though California is trying to do it for months and months at a time, months, long time, long time. What Sweden is doing, they can do indefinitely. And their population trusts them which I also think will lead perhaps to less deaths in the long run. This is not a question of deaths versus the economy. Yeah. I think that's, this is a question of more deaths versus more deaths. It's a question of, you know, are we taking steps that are going to have unintended consequences that are actually going to cause more people to die because our, our solutions don't actually match the problem. Yeah. I think that's, that's interesting. We, we definitely have benchmarked deaths as the, the currency by which we're measuring alternative solutions. I think Dennis actually here raises a really interesting point. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the case that, you know, young people die, but we've heard stories about, you know, permanent scarring of the lungs or other, you know, post-infection maladies that go on for a while. And, you know, what have you seen in terms of the numbers there that, you know, maybe the 40-year-olds the aren't dying, 
but there could be long-term health implications that you know add to the column of this is harmful. We need to, we need to weigh against that. Yeah. So I would be the first to admit nobody knows the long-term health implications, right? N nobody can possibly know that with high degree of certainty because it's going to take a longitudinal study to figure that out. Um, but I would say not knowing long-term health implications is not a justification to put 300 million Americans under house arrest, right? Because there's a lot of viruses out there that we don't know their long-term implications. And there's new viruses every year that we don't know. There's a new flu every year that we don't know its long-term health implications. And so we have to make decisions based on the information we have available. And we can say to Americans, like we can educate Americans and say, this may have long-term health implications. You may want to stay at home. And I think that's great. And if people want to stay at home, that's fine. Uh, I'm, not telling, I'm not going out there and telling people who are staying at home that shouldn't be staying at home. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that we shouldn't be suspending the Constitution and letting people who want to go out, go out. And so there's a couple different things going on there at once. Yeah. So when you say suspending the Constitution, I think we had a, a, a minor Twitter spat yesterday in a friendly way about maybe the differences in how California yeah. and Texas have engaged here. You know, my perspective was, you know, one of my friends had posited on Twitter saying, hey, there are actually some institutions that have, have potentially come out of coronavirus strengthened, and he asked for examples. And my contention was federalism and American democracy, because at the end of the day, it's elected officials, whether it's the city mayor, the county judge in Texas's case, the state, uh, the state governor, who are accountable to the electorate and making decisions. Um, but I've heard you mention a couple of times, spending the Constitution, sounds like California might take a different tack. What have you seen that could be extra constitutional? And who is making the decisions in California, say, that might be outside the electoral process? Yeah. Okay, so just to kind of reframe this, so we, we're talking there's medical lens, legal lens, and moral lens, right? In the medical argument, I'm saying that we are actually killing more people, or we may be killing more people with the medical prescription we've given in the long run. In Clare County, the county health officer issued an order. It's uh, unelected without really any kind of, there's no due process. She, you know, if somebody wanted to search my house, they would have to go to police, they have to go to a judge, present evidence beyond some level, some defined level of reasonableness, and the judge gives a order or a warrant to search my house. Mm -hmm. In this case, this is an individual with no checks and balances, who says, the two million people in my county, you're now, you can't leave your house and you have to wear a mask and you can't go to work. So that is not unusual in Santa Clara. That's the case with every single county, at least in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, that's the case what happened in Wisconsin. So the Wisconsin order didn't come from an elected official. The Wisconsin order came from uh, the state health officer. Uh, every state has a slightly different name. Yeah. So, there have been laws written that, that give them a very high degree of uh, flexibility to issue these unilateral orders. And to me, I mean, it, it is, a, we, 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 no sugarcoating it. It is a suspension of constitutional rights. It's a suspension of freedom of religion. It's a suspension of freedom of assembly. And there yeah. may be times in American history that that is necessary. I'm not an absolutist. I'm not one that says that there can be no circumstances that we can't bend on. Yeah. But 
to, to, to meet the, the burden of proof on the state in order to enact these sorts of measures is enormous. And I don't think we're, we've never been close to it. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I'd, I'd be curious, you know, given a counterfactual situation, let's say another pandemic comes, what would the statistics need to look like in order for you to be more amenable for, say, an elected county health official to exercise those extra constitutional capabilities? Yeah, so I've, I've been given this a fair amount of thought because I do like to have principles of driving when to do what. And my principle, you know, these things can evolve over, over time, but ideally they, they, they are fairly well solid. I mean, I look at it as a question of any jurisdiction. When can any jurisdiction suspend the constitutional rights of its uh, constituents? And to me is when there's an existential threat to your jurisdiction, right? Like when can the United States take uh, extreme actions uh, as a federal government during the civil war suspending habeas corpus when there's an existential threat to the continuation of the union you know when can a state take these kinds of matters when there's an existential threat i mean i'm you know that's that's my bar right there's yeah. like the, there's a bar of civil lawsuit winning there's a bar of criminal lawsuit convictions right beyond yeah. reasonable doubt and to me the bar is existential threat to suspend the constitution now we can define what that means but in no, in no capacity, what that means is 0.1 or 0.2% of the population may die. That is not an existential threat, even 0.5%. Mm -hmm. Got it. So but is there a threshold that you've kind of self-established or is it, you just know it's above that number? I mean, because one of the reasons I'm asking is yeah. I would imagine that in the next, in our lifetime, we will likely have another pandemic. Like we've seen them every Maybe not to this degree, but you know, in 2009 we had the, the swine flu, and you know, in the 50s we had this, the, the the flu then. And it would not surprise me if another one of these occurred in the next five years, ten years, twenty years, whatever. And maybe that time, that one's the big one. Like, how do you know before the event happens whether or not to exercise these things until it's too late? And I think that's that's just about the precautionary principle. Is you know, is it just flexibility in policy where you have the more restrictive focus earlier on and then you're willing to raise it more quickly because that's the real sticking point is you, there's so much uncertainty here you just don't know when to apply it in what could be an existential crisis or just you know a false positive yeah false positive right so first of all i would say if there is uncertainty and it's innocent until proven guilty the burden of proof is on the government to show that there is a high degree of certainty to suspend the constitution otherwise what is the value of a constitution? It's not even a law. It's, I mean, it's an actual constitution. What is the value of it? Every time we have ambiguity, right? The constitution doesn't become invalidated when we have ambiguity. Well, I mean, right. in, our, in our country, it has recently. But I don't think the constitution should become invalidated yeah. because we're facing ambiguity. Because we can face ambiguity with the stock market, with the pandemic, with a potential war. You know, it's you open up Pandora, Pandora's box for ambiguity. Um, I think the solution there is like, I mean, we either we are a country that believes in individual rights because we believe people can make decisions for themselves or we don't. Right. And I think yeah. what a country like Sweden has shown and even actually data in the United States, we can, we can jump to here if you want to in a minute, is that if this virus was actually really deadly uh, to non-elderly, like let's say we, I, I've given this thought experiment, let's say the age, the death rates were identical, but you inversed the demographic risk. So let's say 10% of children die 
and elderly are very, very safe. 10% of children die. I can tell you, I would not allow any other human being within, you know, 100 meters, 50 meters of my house. And I would be staying home, protecting my kids. Because like that, that is, you know, and, and by the way, I have an elderly father and I've taken this very seriously with him. I've not seen him in months. And he had a birthday. I had my kids wouldn't even go see him. They were drawing, you know, on his driveway, had birthday messages. I'm taking this very seriously with him. And if it was my kids at high risk, I would, I would take this equally seriously. My, my view is, is that if the virus was actually that serious, then people wouldn't be going to concerts. People wouldn't be going out to restaurants in bars shoulder to shoulder, right? So yeah. I, I guess I have a little bit more faith in, in people knowing that like, this is really serious. You know, people are dying from this left and right. There's actual yeah. bodies in the streets, not just what CNN reports. People yeah. would, we don't need the government to tell people to stay at home at that point. I mean, it becomes pretty self-evident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see your point. I, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a valid one. I, I want to maybe transition back to the, the trade-offs. And I think one of the things that's become really apparent to me is the importance of considering trade-offs and policy decisions. You know, I'm a political animal by nature. I, I love to read this stuff and kind of weigh the 51, 49 decisions. So you've mentioned a couple times that you have a hypothesis that deaths may increase in the long run compared to just, you know, what we could have otherwise. What right. are some of, where is some of that accounting coming from and how do you see those deaths accruing in the non-COVID column, but that could you surpass where we're at right now? Yeah, I mean, the, there's what's called deaths of despair, which this is, um, I've actually learned about the actuary industry. So those are people who work for life insurance companies whose job it is to build life, you know, life expectancy tables, because their job is to make, this is pretty uh, macabre, but their job is to make money off life insurance. And so they need to know if you're a male who smokes, who's 39 or is healthy, that's 35, how much to charge you for life insurance, unlike academic epidemiologists that write models that never have any accountability to it. Um, and so there was a good actuary study in South Africa. And I think the developing countries are probably the are probably the, the biggest victims in this I use a strong term, but it's a bit of I view what's going on as a bit of a charade. They're the biggest victims in this because you have a country like South Africa whose whose curve was flat, right? Um, sorry, let me let me share the screen again with you. Um, let's add a country like Zimbabwe, which is under lockdown. Let's add a country like South Africa, which is under lockdown. And there you see they're down here. Like this is an actual, this is a, this is a line. They're at zero. And there are countries that are on lockdown. So there you're taking countries that already had, and you can extend this to poor parts of the United States as well, right? It's just more extremely seen there. You have countries which never had a case problem and they may in the future, but they've kind of lost their credibility by locking down now that have huge levels of poverty High, extremely high levels of unemployment, low standards of living, and zero to no deaths, and they're shutting down. So, so the actuaries, they, they predicted years of loss, years of lives lost. And for South Africa, it was something between 10 and 20 million life years lost. Uh, they also did those numbers for COVID, and it was something, it was, it sounded big, it was like 50,000 to 500,000, right? But it was, it was an order or two magnitude below of that. So what are those causes? There's alcoholism, which by the way, alcohol kills, the incidence kills 80,000 Americans a year. That's more than 
coronavirus, and that's year after year after year after year, right? I mean, if we really want to take those kind of precautions, we should ban alcohol. That would save almost 100,000 Americans uh, lives a year. I'm not actually suggesting that, but I'm pointing that as a, as a counter argument. So uh, alcoholism, child abuse, marital problems, uh, losing health insurance is probably correlated with death, lack of you know, generational poverty, people losing educational opportunities. The, the, the kinds of unintended consequences that we have, let alone the possibility that we may enter a massive economic downfall, which we don't know yet if you know, that's gonna happen or not. Those are all gonna cause deaths. And I don't think we're weighing those. That's again, that's the medical side of things. I don't think those are really being well thought out. And so having ambiguity and uncertainty and saying, oh, this, this looks really bad, this may be bad. Uh, the law of unintended consequences often shows us that the unintended effects of knee-jerk reactions often far outweigh and far have a cast a far longer shadow than the actual risk the original risk itself. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely fair. And I think what we're seeing in the, in the current system, what 20% unemployment, you know, you even think about what happens if they cancel school next year. Um, I, I'm doing a, doing some research in Dallas recently and upwards of 40% of folks in the, you know, less wealthy parts of Dallas do not have internet access, which means that's another year potentially of education lost. Um, what are the long-term downstream impacts to those communities that, to your point with the African example, already are having a deep challenge navigating the economy? And something like this comes along and just further, further wrecks it. You know, that's, it's hard to, and again, a lot of uncertainty there. How do you model that stuff? And this is, this is the thing it comes back to is we've been basing a lot of this on models. And one of my favorite quotes from business school yes. um, yeah. is that, you know, all models are wrong and some are useful. And I think one of the challenges that the media faces, even if they are well-intentioned, we can have a debate on that later on, but let's just assume they are well-intentioned. It's very hard to, in a headline, report the error bars around a certain set of assumptions and numbers. So as you think about right. like, what the long-term repercussions could be for, you know, let's just say call it the modeling industry as it relates to epidemiology, like, and maybe this expends to things like climate change and others where the models maybe aren't perfect, but there's a directional accuracy. How do you think about the value of models in our society and communicating the complexity and nuances around assumptions that could drive policy decisions, but that are also shrouded in uncertainty? So I view models as basically a proxy simplification for trust in experts. And I think what we've seen across the board is most people saying, well, this is what the medical experts say, so this is what we should do. Um, but that, and you know, politicians shouldn't be overriding them, and I shouldn't be overriding them or second guessing them. But experts are wrong continuously on major things all the time. That's why they, and they have an incentive, right? The, the, the medical experts have an incentive to give us the worst possible warning of this because uh, they are in a much better situation if they say millions of people are going to die. You should take actions. Okay, you took actions. Not only 100,000 people died, good. You know, we look better. A medical expert looks much worse if he says, you know, it's not that big of a deal. 50,000 people are going to die only, and then 100,000 people die. Everybody's going to, you know, 
put that person on a stake because they underestimated. So we got to look at the incentive structure. Experts have the incentive structure to give us the worst possible outcome because they can't look bad, as bad as if they underestimate. But uh, I'll, use some medic, I'll use some military examples because um, that's at least a topic that I feel more comfortable relating to so-called experts. You know, military experts recommended to President Eisenhower that we drop a nuclear bomb on Vietnam in support of the French. Military experts recommended to JFK that we drop a tactical nuke on Cuba in part of their invasion. Does that mean that we should have listened? Did the presidents make a mistake by overriding you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Did they make a mistake not to drop a nuclear bomb when they said this is what you absolutely must do, Mr. President? Like, I think history has shown that it is not. And so right now, it's interesting that Trump is having this squabble with Dr. Fauci. And I think if you polled Americans, people would say, listen to Dr. Fauci. He's the trained epidemiologist. And Mr. Trump, like, what do you know about medicine? Uh, and I'm not saying because Eisenhower and FDR, uh, sorry, and JFK seem to have been vindicated with their decision that somehow automatically makes Trump right. I'm still laying out the principle that listening to experts, which to me is like a larger answer to your question about listening to experts' models, should be questioned because experts were wrong about the politics in 2016. They were all wrong about Trump. Experts were all wrong about the economy in 2009, when in the end, in 2007, when they were all, all suggesting, all, I use that all meaning 95%, 99%, saying that housing markets were going to go up in 2008. Experts said Iraq had WMDs and we had to invade Iraq to protect the United States. Experts said that we could go into Vietnam and avoid a major conflict. Experts said that we should put all of our ships in Pearl Harbor because that's the best way to protect them. Experts, you know, those are all kind of based on assumptions and models, whether they're graphical models or mental models or otherwise. Experts are simply wrong all the time. It doesn't, and the way, the way I view it is, if I wake up from a coma and an expert tells me, you've got five seconds to put this helmet on or you're going to die, right? I'm grabbing that helmet I'm putting on my head. But if an expert, if I wake up from a coma and says, hey, you've got five hours to put this helmet on or you're going to die, I'll grab the helmet and then I'll start a conversation. Well, why do you think that? What do you base that on? What's your data? Like what's going on, right? And I don't think people are challenging experts enough. They're just giving them the benefit of doubt in these models. I think that's a mistake. So Aaron Thomas, a good friend of mine, actually read my mind and I was gonna follow up with this question as well. You know, he says, if we shouldn't listen to experts, to whom should we listen? And, uh, you know, I also have an equal skepticism of experts, but I deeply value expertise because that's the way that I grow and learn in the world. So you've just blown up our whole faith in experts and how we should, how should we approach policy then? How should we approach weighing the pros and cons of things if we can't rely upon people who have spent their lives dedicated to these, these efforts? So of course we should listen to experts. And I, I like, a term I like to use is experience does not equate expertise. Right? Most stock pickers are not good at their jobs. Most accountants I've met are not very good at their jobs. No offense yeah. to the good accountants. <laughs> right? But you all work in organizations where you know people who have been in a certain job for a long time, and they're not necessarily very good at it. It's not necessarily different at higher levels. In fact, I think it's even harder to be competent at a higher level. Yeah. Uh, so we should absolutely listen to, to experts, just like, we should, just like planning is everything, that plans are worthless. 
right? We should listen to experts so we can calibrate and, and, and triangulate. But we should question experts. We should just question and not take things at face value without questioning. What evidence do you base this on? What data are you basing this on? You know, what level of confidence do you have in your assessment? I don't see the media asking those questions. They just report that the worst case scenario, expert says this may happen. So I'm all for experts and having good experts. Um, I'm also for questioning and having, I guess, just critical thinking on your own. And yeah, if you're the president, you're the governor, you should do your own critical thinking. That's why you're in position there. You're not in position to just defer to the military expert who tells you to drop a nuclear bomb or the health expert who tells you to quarantine everybody or the economic expert who tells you to raise tariffs or drop tariffs. Like you have to critically think yourself. Those are hard jobs. I mean, I think, I think you're right there. But something that you know I've been thinking about as well is we're all busy. And I think you at the outset you know, very clearly mentioned that this took, it takes a lot of time and effort for you to have put this analysis together. And at some point we have to take sure. heuristics and credentials are a way, imperfect way, but a way to, to signal to the outside world that this person has at least a baseline knowledge above my own on this topic. So how, for folks in the call here, how would you like, how would you think about them approaching the next say catastrophe or potential war and weigh the costs of, of the deep intellectual satisfaction of having the right answer with the costs of the hours it'll take to do this away from their family, their friends, their work, their career, especially in a 24 hour news cycle where, you know, we've reverted to that in many ways because we are so busy and can't do the research ourselves because things are so complex. Like how in a democracy are we, able to get to good answers if we can't all spend all the time on all these topics? Well, for one thing, we shouldn't give unchecked unilateral powers to individuals. That's generally, I think, a bad idea. And that's a state health officer. That's a county health officer. Um, there's a reason governors can't pass laws themselves. So that is a good, that buys us some time. It requires buy-in from multiple people who may have different interests and not just unilateral. But the second one is, is that it may not take as much time as you think. I mean, I've been running my business. Um, I've been, you know, trying to be a good father and a husband. Um, you know, what surprised me was there was a study from Oxford that said that uh, 50, it's possible 50% of the UK has already been infected. This came out maybe late March. Um, it was a big, it was a big shocking, Revelation and a, a friend and I were debating it, and my friend was negating it. It's like, well, it's just a model, you can put whatever assumptions you want in there. It's like, well, what assumptions would you disagree with? Like, it was just, you know, it was like a daily, daily mall UK article. And I said, well, you know what? I'll just go get the article itself, the original Oxford um, research. And it was six pages long. And it had like basically, it, I, read the, I read the researcher's study. And it was a, you know, a professional doctor and epidemiologist and such. And it was, it was very simple. It was a very straightforward model. It's like, well, the first case happened now, or first deaths happened now. We think it's a 1% chance of death. So that means there's a hundred times more people and we go back 16 days, et cetera, et cetera. It was very simple to follow. So I guess I would say there's, there's an 80-20 rule here. 
if you only listen to the media and only listen to what the media is incentivized to give, which is things to people to read, like stories that say, hey, you're probably okay, let's wait it out, are not going to get a lot of clicks as opposed yeah. to a story of five-year-old baby, five-year-old dies of coronavirus. So um, there's an 80-20 rule here, which just look, you know, look a little bit beneath the surface. Look at some of the first source data. Spend an hour or two hours in a week doing it. And yeah. you can get 80% of the way there. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the ways I've seen to navigate this, and again, this is a little bit cumbersome, but we mentioned this a couple weeks ago with Dan was, you know, the super forecasting movement. Um, so Philip Tetlock wrote a fantastic book called super forecasters, which talks about the failure of experts, but then also dives into what works. And, you know, one of the key elements, and there's a whole list of four or five things that he lists out as to what makes groups of, of, of individuals kind of come up with the right solutions, but it's like humility and curiosity and a willingness to be open to change positions when, when faced with new facts. And those three things seem to fly in the face of, of politics. And, and yet, this gets back to my point right. I had earlier about institutions that every day, like, to some extent, our institutions are resilient because we have been able to see many experiments across the country. And we can kind of, if we pay attention, tune into what's working and what's not and where the data is. And so maybe to your point, over time, these things smooth out and the right answers agreed upon after every single wrong answer is explored and we've worked out all the kinks. Now that doesn't help in the short term, um, but at least it's, to me, there's a, a slightly optimistic lining to all this. And you know, I don't know if it was right or wrong to lock down America. Um, I, I'm still, my personal opinion is I can see it both ways. Um, but as we've gotten more and more fidelity on the data, you know, the right answer going forward seems increasingly clear. And I think what you've laid out are, is a reasonable thing to consider in terms of you know, targeted, targeted um, initiatives. Um, so you know, I'd like to back up to one of the questions that, uh, that um, John Denniston raised, a guy who works for a Silicon Valley company. Um, so he said, let's say you were briefing the C-suite of a Bay Area tech company Monday morning, re-return to work strategy. What are the one to three most compelling data points that you would share? And I'm gonna speak for John here, but maybe presuming that if you were to argue they should open up their workplace, what are those one to three data points that you think are make the case? I would make the case that the young and healthy people in society should be approaching and pursuing herd immunity because the chance of death for a young person is uh, less than driving in a car. Uh, Stanford just wrote this paper. It's like the chance of death if you're under 65 is equivalent to driving like 20 miles a day. If that's under 65, right? If you're talking under 40, it's, 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 even, it's quite a bit less. It's an order of magnitude less. So the chance of death for young people is extremely low. And I think it's, that was the n number one point I had my nine-point plan, which is we have to calm people down by identifying and being realistic about who's at risk. An elderly, super high risk, very dangerous, right? Um, yeah, so identifying that young people are not at risk. Two, showing that by young people be, uh, building immunity, we actually do a benefit to society because then the high-risk people are not living on an edge for the next two or three years or potentially for much longer than that until there's effective treatment and immunity. And then three, I would talk about the livelihoods of people's paychecks. 
that if people are not working, I mean, I guess if you're working for a tech company and people are paying remotely, then, you know, the, the incentives are not aligned. But you're supporting companies that need uh, work, right? If, you, if you're in a big tech company, you have laid off, you have fired your cleaners, other people come to your business to clean your, your, your place. Um, auto repair, my industry, is now working because you're not driving your car. Gas stations and the gas industry is hurting because nobody's buying gasoline. Retailers are hurting because you're not going out and buying, right? So we've made this big, I think, myth about the stay-at-home hero, but hurting the economy. And when we hurt the economy, we, we hurt the well-being of other people. So I guess those would be my three points. Number one, from a medical point of view, which is the number one thing most people care about, is if you're young and without uh, pre-existing conditions, you're less likely to die from this than you are from driving to work. Uh, two, by having more young people exposed to this, we reduce the risk for the high-risk groups that eventually will have to come outside. And three, by reigniting our economy, we are helping the livelihoods of millions of other Americans. Yeah. So if you were that CEO, um, is it worth it to buck the broader society staying locked down to be the first to open up from your perspective? What's well, interesting, I mean, these CEOs are not acting on principles, right? Uh, you see tech heavy companies like Apple starting to go back to work. So Apple announced that they're starting to bring people back slowly to their workplaces because Apple is a hardware-oriented company and they can't work remotely as easily. You have, beyond that, you have Tesla that has illegally gone back to work, although illegally I think they'll be vindicated that it was legal in the long run because their law was unjustified, the ruling is unjustified to begin with, but they're going back to work. And you have these software companies that are saying, oh, you know what? You can just work from home. Everybody else should work from home too, right? And so... It's not surprising to me that how aggressive companies are coming back to work is highly correlated with how easy it is for them to, you know, to be able to work from home. Uh, so to me, uh, that's just, that to me, it's not intellectually honest, right? Because in the entire debate, and I think this is going to play out into the uh, election as well, you have people, we've bifurcated society. You can work from home. You're making a six-figure salary. You can wear your pajamas and be on Zoom. And, and collect your paycheck is, is one part of America. Then you have another part of America that is furloughed, that is laid off, that's losing benefits, that can't pay their next rent, that can't pay for food. And they're pretty upset about this. And most of the people who are out there being vocal about how we should be locked down are not that second group of people. They're the first group of people who haven't lost their pay. So, you know, we're seeing a, a, a split on the viewpoints on here based on personal incentive. And I think you're seeing the same thing with, with tech companies. Although personally, part of, and I put this on a nine point plan, if you can work from home, you should work from home for the time being. Like there's no need to overwhelm the system. If you can work from home, do your thing, work from home. That's great. But if you can't work from home, we shouldn't deny you livelihood. Yeah. Well, you know, you're an, an, an immense amount to think about, and thank you for, for talking through kind of your analysis for the past couple of months. One last question as we kind of end the evening, and this is a little bit of a softball, but I'm curious, you know, what's next? You, you just put another article up on Medium, I think, today, and I'm talking about the death rates, comparing it to, to, um, to heights and what we do 
what else is in the hopper for data analysis that you're planning to run next that, that you've seen interesting to continue this conversation? Yeah, so this is a bit of a preview of something I'm working on right now, which is uh, correlating what is the biggest indicator of state shutdowns? Like, what is, if that's the output, what variable most highly correlates with it? And so I looked at uh, deaths, I looked at cases, I looked at population density, and I looked at political affiliation. And the political affiliation was by, was by a significant amount the largest indicator of what actions a state took and is currently taking hmm. on this problem. It wasn't medical. It was how Democratic or Republican dominant was that state. Um, and to me, that tells me that these decisions being made are highly political and not medical. Uh, and I think that's, that's, um, you know, that's, that's a disappointing uh, takeaway from that. That's fascinating. I can't wait to read it. I actually find that somewhat heartening in the sense that local officials, and this gets back to my first point about institutions working, there is responsiveness to what the population wants and desires. And, you know, maybe it's not scientifically accurate, but for me, that's actually a good news story that our system works in responding to the wants and desires of the people. So I'll yes, and I mean if it's last known, I'll leave this as one caveat to that. The responses the society should respond to those things. And you mentioned yesterday on Twitter that variability is good. And I agree with variability, I agree with the laboratory democracy, but we have a constitution to protect the basic rights yeah. of people. And so there's a reason that we don't allow slavery in the South, but not in the North. There's a reason we don't allow racial segregation in the South. You know, uh, but allow, allow it in the South, but not the North. There are certain things that we have as a country, and we called it the Bill of Rights, have said through the 14th Amendment, these rights are protected universally. You can experiment all you want. You can have different taxes. You can have different zoning regulations. You can have different local laws. But you cannot pass this line of the Bill of Rights. And so to me, it is not acceptable that a local jurisdiction, city, county, state, or federal, any jurisdiction passes that line. That's my concern. Otherwise, I'm all for experimentation. Yeah. Well, as always, I leave conversations with you deeply thoughtful and I think a better informed person. Inan, thank you for your time. I look forward to continuing the conversation over email and other methods, but I'm grateful for this. Likewise. We'll chat soon. All right, folks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us, everybody that stayed for the whole hour. We'll record this and send it out. But uh, next week, we'll dive into education and find out what's next for the education movement. See you. Have a great night. Bye-bye.